Hello everyone, and welcome to the Slightly Scientific Podcast. I'm Oliver, and today I'm going to be joined by Finley and Stacey. Together, we'll be interviewing Dr. Stephen McCarthy, who has been researching how to make painkillers from spider venom. Now, because I record my intro and outro after the interview, I can tell you that this is a fascinating topic. He talks about how we feel pain, why peptides in spider venom stop you from feeling that pain, and why some people don't feel pain at all. I think you will really enjoy this episode. Now on to the interview. So, uh, first question, um, what is pain? It's actually quite a difficult question. Um, on the one hand, it seems like it should be quite simple, right? Because we all know what pain is. We've all experienced it. Um, but from a sort of, uh, not, not quite molecular level, but from a sort of um, biological point of view, it's surprisingly difficult to nail down exactly what it is. I mean, we all know it's, it's a sort of an unpleasant sensation that you get when uh, you've, you've hurt yourself, you've somehow damaged yourself or, um, or you could damage yourself, right? Like, you know, there's a risk of that happening. Um, but we also sort of know instinctively as well, there are different types of pain. Like, you know, the pain you get from, uh, I don't know if you, actually, if you sleep awkwardly and you have a bit of a sore muscle in the morning is, is different to the kind of pain you feel when you get a paper cut, for example. Um, likewise, you know, if you get a headache, that's another kind of pain that feels different to, to those other two types. So trying to understand exactly what those differences are when it comes to sort of what's going on in your body can actually be surprisingly tricky. What is, what is different about the people who, who you've had you based your research on? Why can't they feel pain? So, uh, yeah, I should probably explain. Um, so the research I do is uh, it's sort of in the field of chemical biology. Um, and what I study are uh, compounds that uh, interact with a particular protein uh, in, your, in your nerve cells that is very important for feeling pain, uh, or at least some kinds of pain. And the reason that I, I study these compounds and I study this protein is because there was a study that came out about 14 years ago now, it's quite old by this point. Um, and the people who wrote the study found a family of, uh, of people in Pakistan who uh, were apparently, you know, had, had nothing particularly different about them apart from they were unable to feel any pain whatsoever. And this is quite unusual in some respects. It's, it's not uncommon to find people who have decreased sensitivity to pain. Um, some people have it, you know, much to a very great extent, but um, there are other things about them which, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily want to sort of think about as if, when you were designing a pain drug, for example, like um, there's a family in Italy that can't feel any pain, but they also uh, can't detect any differences in temperature so that they can't feel whether an object is hot or cold, for example. Um, and there's another lady who uh, was discovered uh, a couple of years ago now, uh, she lives in Scotland, um, who can't feel any pain at all. And interestingly, uh, she also doesn't really feel any stress or anxiety uh, for similar reasons, um, which is, you know, great for her. Apparently she's very happy all the time. Um, but equally, like, you know, you want to have some like emotional responses to some things that can cause stress because 
you know, that's, I'm not going to say part of being human, but it's, it's, a, it's an important thing to, you know, to feel a natural sense of anxiety. It helps protect you if you're, you know, in a stressful situation. Um, so this family in Pakistan were really quite unusual in the sense that, you know, they couldn't experience any pain whatsoever. Um, but their sort of their motor functions were totally fine. Um, they could feel hot and cold objects. Um, they had, yeah, there was no, there was nothing obviously different about them apart from that they couldn't feel pain. Um, so if you're a researcher that wants to discover a pain medication, for example, a new painkiller, well, something you can do is you can look at this family and you can say, okay, well, what is different about them in the sort of genetic uh, in their genetic materials or at a molecular level? And does that tell us something about what is what what aspect of their of their physiology is uh, means they can't feel pain? And can we replicate that in you know everyone else essentially? Um, so the researchers in this study did some genetic analysis in this family, and they found that they all carry mutations on a particular gene, which and as you, you might know from school, um, the genes that we have in our bodies. Um, various functions but some of them encode proteins so your body can read yeah. the gene and it turns it into proteins that perform particular functions um, and in this case the gene that was different about this family in Pakistan uh, encodes a particular protein in the nerve cells makes sense that a protein in your nerve cells would be uh, involved somehow in signaling pain right yeah. um, so after that report was published uh, a lot of people myself included um, started investigating compounds that can affect the behavior of this, of this protein, which you know, all of us carry in our bodies, um, with the goal being that if we can find compounds that can block this protein, maybe we'll be able to recreate this pain-free state uh, in, in people you know, like you and me um, who do experience pain. And then, for, and then uh, well, you've created a new painkiller. Um, you, you said there was like a woman in Scotland who um, who couldn't feel stress or anxiety. Um, how do you measure stress and anxiety in a person? This is a uh, yeah again very difficult. I mean, the simple thing to do with, with people is you can ask them, um, you know, how stressed do you feel. But uh, in terms of sort of rigorous measurement, it's it's pretty difficult. Yeah, um, I mean, actually, pain itself is is very difficult to measure. Like if you think of um, People who research heart disease, for example, they can measure all sorts of things about uh, a heart. Like, you know, they can measure your blood pressure, they can measure how fast it's beating, they can measure lots of different parameters. So they can sort of, you know, measurably see, well, what happens if we apply this drug or um, something like that? And you get a measurable outcome. But even with pain and, and stress, there's no, there's no sort of measurable thing you can do like that. The best thing we can do for pain is really just to ask people, you know, how intense is your pain on a scale from one to 10, um, which is pretty subjective. Um, I think it's probably fair to say. Um, so that's one of the challenges of, of making a pain drug um, is that, yeah, it's very difficult to, to really know how much uh, you're having a, an effect when all you can do is really ask people how much pain they're feeling. And that in itself doesn't uh, encompass all the different aspects that I, I mentioned already about pain. Is it like the sort of dull pain, getting a headache? Is it the sharp pain of a cut? Um, you know, some people uh, who have their limbs amputated can feel pain in a limb that no longer exists. 
So, you know, how do you try and explain that um, with what we know about the nervous system? It's, it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to sort of measure and quantify. And it's just one of the challenges involved in making these uh, painkillers. Well, that is quite interesting. I do have, however, have a question, which is what's so special about spider venom? And why, do you, why don't you use like other species of venoms? Sure, so um, I, I mentioned that I was studying compounds that can um, bind to this particular protein and maybe block it and prevent it from uh, performing its usual functions and therefore um, prevent uh, people, you and me, from being able to feel pain. Um, the compounds I study, uh, or one of the compounds anyway, is from the venom of a particular spider. Um, and venom is a really interesting place to look for compounds that could be good painkillers, because um, if you think about what the good properties of a venom are, right, what do you think about when you think of a venom, right? It's, it's fast acting, uh, it's uh, really potent. You don't need very much of it, right? Because you know, most venomous creatures aren't very big. They, they can't make huge amounts of venom. So you know, if, if they make a small amount, then what they make has to be very potent. And these are actually properties that we really like in, in good drugs as well. We like them to be, uh, you know, very, very potent. We don't have to take very much. Uh, we like them to be fast acting, um, all these sorts of things. So they're a good place to look for um, medicinal compounds. And what's interesting about uh, venom in particular is that a lot of the compounds that are in venoms act on the nervous system, um, which makes, again, makes sense. You think of a venom, you know, if you want to uh, paralyze your prey, so you want to, you're hunting an animal and you want to paralyze it so it can't run away. Or even if an animal is hunting you and you want to paralyze it so that you can run away and it can't chase after you. Um, it makes a lot of sense when you sort of think about it in those terms. So yeah, there are lots of compounds in venom that act on the nervous system. And spider venom, it, it just so happens, uh, there are a huge number of different species of spider, um, you know, tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands. Um, and every, not all of them are venomous, of course, but those that do produce venom, which is a pretty big subset, um, will each have you know, dozens, maybe hundreds of compounds in their venom, um, which can uh, which have an effect on the nervous system. So it's, an, it's a huge resource. There's probably you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of different compounds out there, um, which we can investigate and see if they have an effect. Um, spiders, are not the only species that we, we investigate for, for these things. Um, there are lots and lots of venomous species that we, that we look at. Um, in fact, there is already uh, a drug that is approved. It's, it, you, can, you can take it um, if you get in a very bad way, um, which is derived from the venom of a cone snail. And it's called ziconotide. Um, so this is not just sort of a, a theoretical thing. People have already, already done it. Um, but we like to look at spiders because uh, as I said, there's a huge diversity in the venom. And also because, you know, spiders, particularly the sort of the large, like tarantula type spiders, um, they produce quite a lot of venom. And when you're trying to find compounds in venom that could have these effects, uh, it's, a, it's you, know, you, you want to find a species that produces quite a bit of venom because otherwise you'll be there trying to extract venom from a huge number of animals in order to get enough to do the analysis. So it's quite it's sort of convenient to look at spiders in a way that it isn't really to do sort of yeah, centipedes, for example. And um, uh, I think the spider that you uh, studied was the Peruvian green velvet tarantula. How did you find that that a particular spider would be a good, that its venom would be a good painkiller? 
Well, uh, it wasn't actually me that discovered that. It was already, uh, already known when I started my research. Um, essentially, the, I mean, it was discovered because you can perform screens of um, different compounds. So uh, you can take entire venom, so you, straight from a spider, um, and you can, uh, what's called fractionation, which you may have done a bit of in science, where you separate out the different components as best you can, and then you take each one and you uh, perform a test against the protein that we're studying, um, and you can measure the response. So for most compounds, they won't do anything, right? You, you add your compound and you'll see no change in the response of the protein. Um, but for the compounds that are having an effect, you will be able to detect that response. So now you know, okay, well, in this fraction, I know there's a compound that has an effect. So you zoom in on that fraction and you, you know, create more of it. And then eventually you, you know, discover the chemical formula and you know, hopefully and then the structure. And then you know you have um, a potential compound that could be you know, useful as a drug lead. Um, in my particular case, so the, the, the molecule I study is a, is a peptide, so it's a very small protein. Um, it's called protoxin 2. And uh, when I started my PhD, it was known that it was uh, very, very, very effective at, at blocking um, the protein of interest. Um, but it wasn't really known how it did that. And understanding how it does that is, um, is a really important thing to do in medicinal chemistry. Because if you understand how it is uh, interacting with that protein and then what it's doing to that protein in order to uh, prevent the protein, to block the protein, um, you can then start to design other things that might act in the same way, but better. Um, if you don't have that information, you're kind of sort of guessing blind, if that makes sense. Um, so that was where my research came in. So it was sort of structural studies, making uh, modified versions of this peptide, um, and then trying to see what effects that had. Um, and also trying to work out, yeah, some information about where on this, on this protein it was binding, so we can design newer, better drugs that, yeah, do it even better, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and those peptides you were talking about, um, how do you find out the structure of them? Was that um, the, fraction, the fractionation you were talking about, or is there a different way to find out the structure of the peptides? Yeah, it's different. Uh, fractionation is where um, you, you have a mixture of compounds and you want to separate them out so you can look at them individually. Um, but that doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the structure. Um, there are a few different ways of finding out the structure of, um, of a compound. The one I use is called X-ray crystallography, um, which essentially involves uh, growing a crystal of your compound of interest. So in my, in my case of this peptide, and then you shoot a beam of X-rays at it. Um, this, when, it when the X-rays go through the crystal, um, they diffract, so the beam kind of splits. And how the beam splits allows us to work out what was in the structure of what was in the crystal to begin with. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a little more complicated than that, but essentially that's, uh, that's how it works. It's quite old, actually. Um, you know, the first X-ray crystal structures are, you know, decades old at this point. So it's been around for quite a while. Um, the hard part is getting your compound to form a nice crystal, right? Um, yeah, it's a little bit harder than, uh, than like, you know, the salt crystals that you, or sugar crystals that you probably see on a, on a daily basis. In fact, we've, in chemistry, um, we're actually making um, crystals. We're making um, magnesium sulfate and um, copper sulfate, literally just um, on Friday. 
um, is quite fantastic. Well, the copper sulfate um, is actually one of the very first compounds that was studied by exocrystallography. Um, so yeah, it's it's nearly yeah, it's around 100 years ago now, I think. Um, yeah, they got they took a big copper sulfate crystal and shot X-rays at it, and that was one of the ways they discovered exocrystallography. So yeah, some things some things never grow old. Exactly. Um, now. Uh, what can you what can you infer from the structure of these peptides? So once you know the structure of the peptide, you can see which of the sort of uh, which parts of the which parts of the peptide are where in space, obviously, um, and that allows you to get some information about which parts might be important for the binding and the activity against the protein. Um, so not all of it will be important uh, necessarily. So you, you want to identify just the sort of the key points where it's uh, it's interacting with the with the protein, and then what those points that are doing that prevents the protein from from performing its function. Um, so in our case, um, we uh, we can see from our crystal structure that there that it's very it's very tightly coiled protoxin two um, is, is a good way to describe it. It's very compact uh, and very rigid, um, and we think that that's important because if you have a very sort of floppy peptide that can sort of you know move around a lot uh, in solution as it would be if it's in you know if it's in some venom, um, then it isn't sort of organized uh, to bind to to the um, to the protein in your nerves. By being very rigid and very sort of compact, uh, it means that all of the uh, the sort of the key parts which interact with the protein are in one place, so that when it gets to the um, to when it gets to the surface of your nerves, where you know this protein is, uh, it's it's sort of ready, if you like, to bind on, um, and it doesn't have to do any sort of jiggling about to get into position. Um, so that's one thing that we we can see about it. Um, I mean, the other thing that we we wanted to do is once we had the structure, we could sort of guess which parts might be more important than others for 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 the activity. So you know, um, you know, if you can say, okay, well these parts other bits that are responsible for blocking the protein, then you can maybe design a compound that has just those bits and doesn't have the rest of it and see how that works and what, what does that do about the, how, how does that behave when you apply it to the cells? Um, and this is something medicinal chemists do all the time. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's a sort of a key part of what's called structure-based drug design. So you take a structure that you know works you try and identify the important bits, and then you use that information to try and design new and hopefully better drugs. Well, this, well, this all sounds very important. However, how can you make sure that a painkiller is reliable? And how reliable does a painkiller need to be so that people can start using it? Uh, it depends what you mean by reliable. What do you mean by reliable in this particular Context. For example, is it gonna? Are there side effects to the? Are, are there side effects? Can people get hurt? Is it safe? Sure. Oh, yeah. And um, how often does it work as well? And how many people does it work for? Yeah, I mean, these are all really good questions. Um, the way that we test drugs is through clinical trials, essentially. And a clinical trial is where you take a, a very very large number of people, ideally, um, and you uh, you test your compound against whatever it is you, uh, you're looking at. So in this particular case, in the case of a painkiller, um, you would find people who are experiencing some form of pain or who are happy to you know, be given a little bit of pain in the right context. 
um, and you either give them the compound that you're interested in or you give them a placebo compound which is you know a compound or it's a something that looks essentially identical to the drug you're giving them but doesn't actually contain any of the active compound so it shouldn't work um, and then you compare the responses before and after and if your compound is having the effect you want then the people that took the drug should see increased pain tolerance or you know, decreased levels of pain and the people that took the placebo should see you know they might not see the same as people who took nothing but they shouldn't see the same levels as the people who took the real drug um, and by doing it in a large number of people you try and measure exactly these things that you, you were talking about you try and see what, what how many people did it have this effect in um, if you've done your job right and designed the clinical trial correctly then there'll be a very very diverse group of people in it um, so you're making sure that it doesn't affect some groups of people more or less than others um, so in terms of so before you even get to that stage there's a there's a huge amount of testing that will go on before you get into humans so um, you know usually compounds like this are tested first in cells then if that's looking promising you might move into mice and then if that's looking promising you might do some other studies on other animals um, things like uh, toxicology studies which is really where you look at um, yeah, look at the side effects essentially. Um, in the mice, you, gen you tend to look for just, uh, just the sort of effects that you're looking for from your drug. Um, when you go to other animals, you know, other than mice beyond that, you're starting to look at you know, well, what else could this drug be doing? Uh, what happens to this drug when it goes into the body? Because you know, your, these are, your, your body doesn't know it's there to help you. It's, you know, it's a drug. It will it will freely modify it and you know, digest it and do all sorts of other things that your body is normally naturally able to do. Um, so you want to make sure that it, uh, when it does that, none of the things it produces are going to cause you any harm. Um, and you want to make sure that uh, the drug, when you actually sort of give it to someone, is actually getting to the, getting to the place where it needs to be in the first place. Um, so this is something that is quite important for particularly peptide drugs like the one I study, because uh, peptides as you know, they're small proteins if you give that to someone as a pill and they swallow it and it will go into their stomach well it'll probably just be digested just like every protein that you eat um, and therefore it probably won't get to the place where it needs to go the stomach will digest it and you know it, it won't be any good so you need to think about how you're going to give people the drug as well um, so that uh, that peptide i mentioned that is available as a painkilling drug ziconotide um, you have to take that uh, by in, intravenously, so they inject it into your bloodstream. Um, so that avoids the problem of getting digested by stomach, but it has some downsides because, you know, obviously it's a, it's a much more dramatic intervention. You know, there are people who don't like needles, understandably, um, and also means you can only really take it in, in a hospital environment, right? You know, where they're trained to, um, to inject things into your bloodstream. Um, it's much more convenient to have a drug that you take, you know, like, like you would take a, a paracetamol, you know, just from a bottle at home. Um, so there's a whole field uh, as well of, of trying to make uh, peptide drugs that you can take as a tablet rather than have to inject. Um, so th these are all the sorts of things that uh, when you're designing a new drug, you just have to consider even before you get as far as the clinical trial. So there's, there's lots of work to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, wow, the, yeah seems like there's so much to do before you even like 
get yeah get to the clinical trials um and how many how many stages of clinical trials do you do you have for painkillers uh well in terms of uh, that's a really difficult question um because it sort of depends on uh well what do they show um generally as a, as a sort of a blanket rule, and this is not just for painkillers, this is for most drugs, um, you'll get what we'll call three phases, right? So you have the phase one trial, which is in a very small number of people. And the goal of that trial is just to see that nothing bad happens, essentially. Um, you give them this drug and they're okay. Um, you know, they, they don't show any serious side effects and sometimes drugs do show serious side effects um, at that stage uh, and you want to find out in a small number of people in a very closely observed like monitored setting before you start giving it to lots of people um, if you pass the, the phase one clinical trial you move on to a phase two clinical trial which is where you start to look at efficacy so you know, does it work in, in treating the disease that we hope it, that it will do um, and those tend to be larger um, if you have incredibly good results at phase two, you might be allowed to not do another trial. Um, that's kind of unusual, um, but it, it can occasionally happen. Um, but then most drugs will go on to what's called a phase three trial, which is in a, a very, very large number of people in sort of, if you like, realistic um, clinical settings. So um, people with, with real diseases, with all the sort of natural variability that you find in people you know, in, in the general population. Uh, you wanna make sure that you're um, getting a very diverse representation um, as much as possible. And, and, and that's really the sort of the, the, the key test, right? You know, will it work in you know, the real world? As much, you wanna simulate that as much as possible. Um, so generally there, there are three stages, but some drugs have more, some drugs have less. Um, you know, pain is one of those things where it kind of depends on the type of pain. Right. If you want to see if you've got a drug that will cure a headache, well, that doesn't take all that long to test because you know headaches don't last that long, and you know generally you can expect your painkiller to to respond pretty quickly. Um, whereas if you're looking at people with something like chronic pain, which is where um, they feel pain almost all the time, um, even when there's no real injury or you know any sort of obvious reason for it, um, you you hear about this a lot with people with sort of chronic back pain or chronic neck pain. Um, it's a very serious, very serious problem. Um, but obviously people who experience that kind of pain, you'll need to conduct a much longer trial um, to see if the painkiller is having an effect. So if you take your painkiller, does it work for half an hour and then wear off? Um, or does it work for two weeks and then wear off? Um, and these are, these are very, very different, obviously, in terms of what you're trying to treat and, and what you need to do to monitor your trial. And yeah, it's, it, it sort of depends on each individual drug if that makes sense. Although three phases is the sort of the general rule. So I feel like that was both very specific and also very vague, but. Yeah, <laughs> it's really, no, no, I, I really um, enjoy listening to that. Um, yeah, because that, so is that a bit like um, the vaccine phases? Because then you, because um, with phase one, it's kind of a small group of people, then you gradually get bigger to a larger, um, to a larger audience. Is that what you've, call the people who are getting it. Um, but um, uh, for the final question, um, when you're testing on animals, how can you be sure that animal nerves can be compared to human nerves? So, I mean, I should explain, I 
Uh, I've never personally done any experiments with animals. I've, I've used cells, but, um, but, but I haven't got any further than that. So uh, uh, this is based on, on what I know from my colleagues who have done animal experiments. Um, there are lots of reasons to believe that um, sort of mice, which is the one that the animals sort of study I, I know most, most about, are good models for uh, human pain. And the reason for that is because many of the proteins that we're interested in targeting with our pain med medicines are also present in mice with very few modifications. Um, I mean, actually, the, I mean, the protein that I've been talking about this whole time um, is very, very ancient, extraordinarily ancient. It's one of the, it, it's present in bacteria, for example. Um, and, you know, there are drugs that you know, exist that, you, you know, that you, people use for anesthetics that will, that will bind and block bacterial versions of this protein. So in that sense, it's very old and not much has changed. So, so the mice model is, is pretty good, right? You know, there's, there's very few differences between uh, the protein in mice and the protein in humans. Um, beyond that, mice seem to respond to pain in a similar way to humans. So we can't ask them on a scale of one to 10 how much pain they're feeling, but you know, when humans, uh, experience pain they they do some particular things right like if, if you bump your head you know you rub it right um you know and that's pretty much instinctive or if you put your hand on on something that's hot you remove it pretty quickly right it's, it's like an instinct you don't even think about it um and and mice do the same thing so for example one of the tests that um, that scientists use to see if a painkiller is working in mice is you can you put a mouse on uh, on a sort of a glass bottomed like a sort of container I suppose like, you know with, with walls so they can't run away um, and you shine a light on the underside of one of their paws and you know that will cause the paw to, to warm up to get a little hot um, and when it gets hot uh, the, mouse, the mouse will recognize it and they'll lift their paw up right they, they take it away just like you would if you you know held your hand like a little bit too close to a candle um, so what you can do is you can take mice and give them that test and see how long it is between when you put them or you start shining the light and when they remove their paw. And then you can give them the drug or you know, whatever you want to test. Um, and then you repeat the experiment. And if the, the mouse is, uh, if the drug is working and you know, the, the mice is feeling less pain than they did before, then it will take them longer to work out that there's, they're getting a, a sort of a, a trigger for pain in their paw. So it takes them longer to lift it up. And you measure the difference in how long it takes for them to lift up their paw. So that's, you know, that's one way, for example, that you can use. And, and we think that's a fair test because you know, humans do the same thing. You can perform this test on humans and it's exactly the same results. Humans that have taken painkillers um, will, you know, will do similar things. So in as much as we can tell, um, whether mice are a good model for pain in humans, they seem to be, um, particularly because they respond in similar ways to pain. This isn't always the case. Like I mentioned, uh, it's good for sort of short-term pain, like, you know, yes, like you know, when you put your hand too near a candle. Um, it's not necessarily so good for chronic pain, where you know, it's difficult to tell what's causing it in humans to begin with. And so it's very difficult to, to replicate that in mice. So yeah, so there are some, some things that we would make us believe that mice are a good model for pain. 
some areas where we think it may not be so good. Um, and yeah, we're just going to continue to investigate it, I suppose, and, and, and try and make sure that the models that we're using are as close to representative of what will happen in humans as, as we can. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, we got through all the questions and it's really, it's really interesting to see how you studied the, um, the peptide and um, how you use the um, crystal, crystallography. That's it. Yeah, That's it. it. There we go. <laughs> um, and it was really, it's quite, it's quite nice because it, as it ties into our chemistry lessons and I'll tell my chemistry teacher that and um, I'll see what she says. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, this has been such an amazing opportunity. Thank you so much for letting us interview you. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So a massive thank you to Dr. Stephen McCarthy for letting us interview him. We had an incredible time learning about how peptides and spider venom could be used for painkillers, as well as how you can test the reliability of them and how you can find out what certain peptides do. And thank you guys so much for listening. You can reach us on Twitter at The Slightly Sci, on Instagram, The Slightly Scientific Podcast, or on our website, slightlyscientific.co.uk. We hope you enjoyed today's show and make sure to stay tuned for next month's podcast. See you then. Goodbye. <laughs>